Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Friday, March 1st, 2024. The funeral for Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny draws thousands of mourners chanting slogans against Russian President Vladimir Putin and his war in Ukraine. President Joe Biden pushes again for the U.S. House to pass his $60 billion aid request for Ukraine as he meets with the visiting Italian prime minister at the White House. President Biden also announcing the U.S. will drop food aid into the Gaza Strip, saying that humanitarian aid for the Palestinians caught in the middle of the war between Israel and Hamas is not sufficient. U.S. House and Senate not in session for legislative business today after passing Thursday another federal government funding extension which the White House says the president has signed into law. We'll hear from two members of Congress, one Republican, one Democrat, about where negotiations stand on full fiscal year government funding. CVS and Walgreens, the two largest U.S. pharmacy chains, will start selling the abortion pill Mifepristone in a handful of states this month before offering it more widely. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley campaigns in Washington, D.C. And First Lady Jill Biden launches Women for Biden-Harris at a campaign stop in Atlanta. Also, in the Georgia election interference case, where Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump is on trial with co-defendants, closing arguments in the hearing over misconduct allegations against the Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis. Associated Press in Moscow reports under a heavy police presence, thousands of people bade farewell Friday to opposition leader Alexei Navalny at his funeral in Moscow after his still unexplained death two weeks ago in an Arctic penal colony. Navalny was buried at a cemetery in the snowy southeastern outskirts of the capital after a short Russian Orthodox ceremony with vast crowds waiting outside the church and then streaming to the fresh grave of President Vladimir Putin's fiercest critic with flowers and anti-government chants. Although riot police set up barricades at both the church and cemetery, no detentions were reported. The service followed a battle with authorities over the release of his body. His team said several Moscow churches refused to hold the funeral for the man who crusaded against official corruption and organized massive protests. Many Western leaders blamed the death on the Russian leader, an accusation the Kremlin angrily rejected. That's the article from Associated Press. The crowd chanted, You weren't afraid, neither are we. No to war. Russia without Putin. Putin is a murderer. Russia will be free. And the name Navalny. U.S. Ambassador to Russia, Lynn Tracy, among many foreign diplomats, seen at the service. And after the memorial service, Lexi Navalny was interred at a local cemetery where music from his favorite movie was played, Terminator 2. BBC News reports that Russian President Vladimir Putin has warned Western countries against sending troops to Ukraine. The consequences of a decision would be tragic, he said. In the annual State of the Nation address, President Putin accused the West of trying to drag Russia into an arms race. They are talking about sending NATO military contingents to Ukraine. But we can recall what happened to those who used to send their contingents to our country. The consequences for these potential um, uh, intruders will be much more tragic now. They need to finally understand that we too have weapons, and they know that, I have just mentioned, we too have weapons that can strike targets on their territory. 
And everything that they're thinking of now, everything that they use to threaten us and the world, that all this is a real threat of nuclear weapons being used, which spell destruction of civilization. Some of the Russian President Vladimir Putin's State of the Nation address held on Thursday, that interpretation provided by BBC News. French President Emmanuel Macron said earlier this week that sending NATO troops to Ukraine could not be excluded. The Pentagon press secretary in the United States, Pat Ryder, said at his briefing the U.S. has no plans to do that. Russia's war in Ukraine was one of the topics when President Joe Biden met today with Italy's Prime Minister, Georgia Maloney, at the White House. President Biden speaking about his requested $60 billion for Ukraine, which packaged with another $35 billion for Israel and Taiwan, has passed the U.S. Senate. But Speaker of the House Mike Johnson has so far refused to bring it up on the floor for a vote. President Biden today also announcing that the U.S. will be airdropping food aid into the Gaza Strip, noting that humanitarian aid flowing into that region for the Palestinians is insufficient. Well, Prime Minister Maloney, thank you for being here again. And I have to admit to you, as she walked in the door, we're good friends. And I played Ray Charles, Georgia, as she walked in the door. Now, most of you don't know Ray Charles, Georgia, but anyway. Look, uh, Italy and the United States are strong allies and really close friends. And uh, as you said when we first met here in the Oval, Georgia, that uh, we have each other's backs. And we do, and you've demonstrated that from the moment you took office. And uh, we also have Ukraine's back. That's why I'm urging the House of Representatives to pass the legislation that allows us to, in a bipartisan way, continue to support Ukraine now. They need the security bill now. The bill includes funding for Ukraine so we can help keep Putin from uh, his onslaught from succeeding in Ukraine. And and I want to thank you, Georgia, for Italy's unwavering support for Ukraine and your leadership of the G7 this year. Today, also, we're going to discuss the Middle East and yesterday's tragic and alarming event in North Gaza, trying to get humanitarian assistance in there. And uh, the loss of life is heartbreaking. People are so desperate that uh, uh, innocent people got caught in a terrible war, unable to feed their families, and you saw the response when they tried to get aided. And we need to do more, and the United States will do more. In the coming days, we're going to join with our friends in Jordan and others in providing airdrops of of, uh, additional food and supplies into Ukraine and seek to continue to open up other avenues into Ukraine, including the possibility of a Marine Corridor to deliver large amounts of uh, humanitarian assistance. In addition to expanding deliveries by land, uh, as I said, we're going to we're going to insist that Israel facilitate more trucks and more routes to get more and more people the, the help they need. No excuses, because the truth is, aid flowing to Gaza is nowhere nearly enough. Now it's nowhere nearly enough. Innocent lives are on the line, and children's lives are on the line, and we won't stand by and let until they until we get more aid in there. We should be getting hundreds of trucks in, not just several. And uh, I won't stand by. We won't let up, and we're not going to pull out, uh, trying to pull out every stop we can to get more assistance in. So, and here's the deal: we've been working, and hopefully, we'll know shortly. And I know you've been informed 
We're uh, trying to uh, work out a deal between Israel and Hamas on the hostages being returned uh, and uh, an immediate ceasefire in Gaza for at least the next six weeks and, and to allow the surge of aid uh, to the entire Gaza Strip, not just the south, but the entire Gaza Strip. And so, Georgia, we have a lot to discuss today, not, and then we're talking about everything from China on. I'm happy you're here and delighted to, that you came back. I know you're on your way to Canada, right? Yeah. Good. The floor is yours, madam. Well, I'm delighted to be here today in my capacity as a G7 chair, and I look forward, Joe, to hosting you in Puglia next June for the Leaders' Summit. Uh, I'm working on a concrete and substantial G7 summit we intend first and foremost to reaffirm the rule-based international order, defending freedom and building peace for Ukraine. And uh, in doing this, I think we need to tackle the narrative that wants the West against the rest. So uh, the dialogue, our dialogue within the G7, within the global South is essential. Uh, the crisis in the Middle East is of, uh, of the utmost concern. We need to coordinate our actions in order to avoid an escalation. And in this regard, we do fully support the U.S. mediation efforts. Uh, the humanitarian crisis is our number one, number one priority. Italy is concentrating its contribution on this. Meanwhile, we are cooperating with all regional actors that must be part of any future outcome. Uh, we should work together on concrete steps to guarantee the two-state perspective, which is the only long-term sustainable solution. And then the Houthis attack on commercial vessels that endanger freedom of navigation in the Red Sea are unacceptable. Uh, EU naval operation Aspides, that, uh, that as you know, uh, is under Italian tactical command. Uh, is an important response to the disruption of transit through the Red Sea. Then building on Italy's role in the Mediterranean, the G7 will pay special attention also to the African continent. We've been discussing it for many times, but I think we have to remember that Africa is not a poor continent. It is, at the contrary, incredibly rich in human and material resources, but it has been neglected and neglected and exploited with a predatory approach for a long time. And I want to reverse this approach together with you, uh, which is also a root cause of the migration crisis. We need to support Africa's development on an equal basis and put an end to illegal migration while fighting human trafficking. Human trafficking has become the most financially rewarding crime globally, and we cannot accept it no, any longer. For the re this reason, I came here today also with a proposal to launch a global alliance against human traffickers. The G7 will discuss artificial intelligence as well. AI is a means. It can be a good or a bad one. It depends on our capacity to govern it, to tackle the risks and the impact it can the impact it can have, for example, on the labor market. Uh, we want to develop AI, but also we want to be certain that it remains human-centered. And then, last but not least, I came here to boost our strategic cooperation. Uh, 
uh, and our relations are enriched by uh, the presence of more than 20 million Italian Americans. During our last meeting here uh, in Washington, we said we wanted to improve our bilateral cooperation and our trade, and we did it. For in 2023, our bilateral trade reached the highest amount ever with one, uh, $102 billion uh, of exchange. So I think we did a good job, but I also think that we can do even better. And I hope uh, this will be our mutual goal for this year. Thank you, Joe. Well, it is, and I, uh, I tried to help. I married an Italian-American. <laughs> so, thank you all very much. President Joe Biden and Italy's Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney in the White House Oval Office, the two not answering any of the reporters' questions. Giorgia Maloney has been Prime Minister of Italy since October 2022 and has led the Brothers of Italy political party since 2014. President Biden announcing that the U.S. will be dropping food aid into Gaza. NBC News reports the White House is growing increasingly concerned about possible famine for a sizable portion of Gaza's population. Samantha Power, the administrator of the United States Agency for International Development, announced this week that the U.S. was sending $53 million in additional humanitarian assistance into Gaza. John Kirby, White House National Security Communications Advisor, answered reporters' questions about this at the regular White House briefing. Was part of the consideration into moving into this airdrop plan and, and the maritime plan, I mean, there had been delays um, for ground shipments of flour just a couple weeks ago, and Israel had been holding that up. So is part of this because Israel hasn't been a reliable partner uh, as much as the U.S. would like to see in terms of getting aid in? Part of this is very much because not enough aid is getting in, uh, and not enough people are getting the food, the water, the medicine, and the fuel that they need. That's what's driving this. We, are rec- we recognize the situation is dire. We recognize the need is great, um, and it hasn't been filled simply by the, the use of ground convoys. And it's a way to kind of get around the need for Israel to sort of go through these uh, checkpoints when it's on the ground convoys? This is, this is a way to get more aid to more people quickly. Um, and I know you said you don't have an exact timeline, but is there a plan for this aid to be dropped over the course of weeks? Is it months? What does that mean? I would say certainly coming weeks. I don't want to, uh, I can't get too predictive right now. We haven't even done the first one. I can assure you there won't be just one. This won't be a one and done kind of thing. There will be additional airdrops. We will learn. We will get better at them over time. Um, but I'd say certainly coming weeks. John Kirby, White House National Security Communications Advisor at today's White House News Conference. Story from CNN, at least 10 Palestinian children have starved to death in Gaza, the United Nations reported on Friday, after a senior U.N. official warned Israel's severe restrictions on aid entering the Strip are creating a man-made famine. The U.N. Health Agency spokesperson said the number of Gazan children that have died from starvation can unfortunately be expected to be higher. This is Washington Today. The U.S. House and Senate are not in session for legislative business today. Both chambers passed a government funding extension on Thursday to avoid a partial government shutdown that without it would have happened tonight at midnight into Saturday. The vote in the House was 320 to 99, and then in the Senate was 77 to 13. During a brief House pro forma meeting today with Congressman Adrian Smith, Republican of Nebraska in the chair, the House clerk read the notice of the temporary funding bill called a CR, continuing resolution, has been enrolled and ready to go to President Biden for his signature. 
The chair will receive a message. Mr. Speaker, messages from the Senate. Mr. Speaker. Madam Secretary. I have been directed by the Senate to inform the House that the Senate has passed without amendment, H.R. 7463, making further continued appropriations for fiscal year 2024 and for other purposes. The chair lays before the House an enrolled bill. H.R. 7463, an act making further continuing appropriations for fiscal year 2024 and for other purposes. The House Reading Clerk, Tylese Ali, at today's pro forma House session, noting that that bill, which would extend government funding, has been passed. Later, the White House said that the president signed it into law. And under that bill, the first group of federal departments funded for one more week through March 8th. And the plan is to have a vote next week on a package of bills for those departments for the rest of the current fiscal year through September 30th. And under the temporary spending bill signing into law today, a second group of departments is funded through March 22nd. C-SPAN spoke this morning with two members of Congress about the funding situation, one Republican and one Democrat. We started with John Rutherford, Republican of Florida. I voted yes uh, on the CR, uh, mainly because there's only one thing I hate more than a CR, and that's a government shutdown. And that's what was looming, a partial government shutdown, and so what this uh, CR does is push, push back the March 1st date to March 8th and the March 15th date to Mar- or the March 8th date to March 22nd. Uh, we got to have an extra week in there because we have a, a Republican uh, strategy retreat uh, in, the, in between there. So what this does, the reason we did this is because we don't... <laughs> We didn't want to pull a uh, Speaker Pelosi on our members and say, here's the bill, vote on it. Uh, We have a rule, 72 hours, we get to look at bills before we have to vote on them. And this will give us the 72 hour requirement uh, that we impose on ourselves so that we can literally read bills before we vote on them. So what are those policy issues that are kind of the stickling points? What's standing in the way of getting this done? Yeah, well, that's part of the issue for this CR, Mimi, is the fact that I know what the bills look like when they left appropriations in the House, but then they go to conference with the Senate. And so I know Speaker Johnson has been working very hard with the, with the Senate on not just the, not just the dollars, but also the policy writers and, and those sorts of things. So we really don't know what the bill looks like yet. Now, we've been told you know, some of the top line numbers are the same, so that's good. But how, what, you know, everything that's in the bill, we don't know yet. That's why we have to read it. And that's why we needed those three days. So you mentioned the three days. The first deadline now is March 8th. That's in a week. So mm-hmm. you have enough time to get this done? Are you optimistic? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be back next week. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to get it Monday or Sunday. They're, they're going to give us the language. So, yeah, we'll get it done next week. Would you be in favor of another continuing resolution if you don't get it done and, and extending that out just to we've the rest of the end of the year? Done. No, we've got to get it done. And, and, and I think we will. I, th- I think there's enough consensus now that we're going to bring these six bills to the floor. You know, Energy and Water, Interior, T-HUD, Milcon VA, AG and CJS, you know, those are the six that we're going to bring. 
and we'll do the next six later. So we're looking at two uh, mini omnibus, if you will. Congressman John Rutherford, Republican from Florida, on C-SPAN's Washington Journal this morning. T-HUD is Transportation and Housing and Urban Development. CJS is Commerce, Science and Justice. We also spoke this morning with Brad Schneider, Democrat from Illinois. We are six months into the current fiscal year and still trying to pass the funding for the current fiscal year. This is something that should have passed uh, before last September. Uh, the path was cleared last June when uh, then-Speaker McCarthy cut a deal with President Biden, and uh, uh, this should have been a straightforward march to funding the government. Uh, obviously, it's not there. This is the fourth CR in, in six months, uh, and in, in many ways, it looks like the, the Republicans are just unwilling to accept yes for an answer. We had an agreement. We need to stick to the agreement. And it looks like, uh, and I don't want to jinx it at this point, but it looks like there is uh, progress towards that agreement and we'll vote on some of the funding bills next week. What are the policy issues that are standing in the way? It's really the, the poison pills that the extremists within the Republican Party are trying to put, whether it's like dealing what? with reproductive uh, health care, uh, dealing with what they would call woke, but uh, very little to do with the actual funding and operations of the government and more about the messaging that just the extreme base in the Republican Party are, are holding over the head of uh, Speaker Johnson. And do you think that Speaker Johnson will have to work with Democrats then to get the votes needed for passing an actual budget? Absolutely. It's, it's been that, that has been the case since the beginning of this Congress last January, a year ago January. Um, and that's, that is a good thing. The, any legislation that will stand the test of time that will represent the full breadth of our country is something that's going to bring people together in the center, a combination of Democrats and, and Republicans. And Democrats have consistently said, first to Speaker McCarthy, now to Speaker Johnson, we are willing to work with you. We are willing to find that common ground and see where we can work together to move the country forward. Would you be in favor of doing a continuing resolution until the end of the fiscal year where that would trigger an automatic 1% cut? No, we should be doing our job. Congress should be passing funding bills for the fiscal year. And an agreement was made with Speaker McCarthy nine months ago in June, setting the path to get this done six month, months ago before the beginning of the year in September. And yet here we are still arguing and uh, Speaker Johnson being held over a barrel by a minority of his own conference. Congressman Brad Schneider, Democrat from Illinois, interviewed on C-SPAN's morning program, Washington Journal. Wall Street today, the Dow up 90, Nasdaq up 183, S&P up 40. From Axios, Walgreens and CVS, two of the largest U.S. pharmacy chains, plan to start offering abortion pills this month, the companies told Axios Friday. The move will increase availability of mifepristone just as the Supreme Court is set to weigh access to the pill in a high-stakes case that marks the top court's first major abortion issue since Roe v. Wade was overturned. The Supreme Court will hear oral arguments on March 26th in a dispute over access to mifepristone with a ruling expected by late June. The two chains received the required certification to dispense mifepristone under the Food and Drug Administration's regulatory change issued last year. They'll start rolling out the medication in a handful of states where abortion is legal. That was reporting from Axios. The White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, spoke about this at the start of today's White House briefing. 
as you heard from President Biden earlier, today is an important milestone in ensuring access to mifepristone, a drug that has been approved by the FDA as, as a safe and effective, as safe and effective for more than 20 years, with major retail pharmacy chains newly certified to dispense this medicine. Many women, women will soon make the option to pick up their prescription at a local certified pharmacy, just as they would for any other medication. The administration continues to encourage all pharmacies that want to pursue this option to seek certification. In the face of relentless attacks on reproductive freedom by Republican elected officials, the president and the vice president will continue to fight to ensure that women can get the health care they need, including mifeprestone. And we will continue to, def to defend the FDA's independent and evidence-based approval of this medicine and call on Congress to restore the protections of Roe v. Wade in federal law. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre. Washington Today continues in a moment. Hi, it's Nate from C-SPAN. Imagine, 45 years ago when there were just a handful of television networks, C-SPAN first went on the air, bringing an unfiltered view of government directly to America's living rooms. No spin, no commentary, just pure democracy in action. And it's Shannon from C-SPAN. It was a bold experiment. We finally had a front row seat to Congress, the White House, and the campaign trail, all without government funding. As we celebrate 45 years and a legacy of unfiltered access, we ask for your support of a donation in honor of over four decades of service. Your gift, no matter how big or small, will help maintain this vital resource for access to the democratic process. You can help ensure another 45 years of witnessing history unfold and empowering citizens to be informed and engaged in the political process. Visit cspan.org slash donate today and join our 45th anniversary campaign. Thank you for supporting C-SPAN, your unfiltered view of government. Visit cspan.org slash donate today to make your gift of support. Thank you. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. It's free and wherever you find your podcasts. Associated Press in Washington, D.C. writes, Republicans in the nation's capital will gather in a hotel this weekend and cast their ballots for the GOP presidential candidate they would like to see occupy the White House. The contest may be the best chance for former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley to score a victory in a presidential nomination contest. She and former President Donald Trump who has won every contest so far, headlined the field of candidates competing in the District of Columbia's Republican presidential primary, which will be held Friday through Sunday. At stake in Washington are the city's 19 delegates to this summer's Republican National Convention, where the party's nominee will officially be crowned. That was from AP. Nikki Haley held her campaign event at the hotel in Washington, where the voting is taking place. The Republican Party I love is one that believes in fiscal responsibility in reducing the size of government, in empowering people. But what did Donald Trump do? He put us $8 trillion in debt in just four years, more than any other president. He didn't shrink government, he grew government. He rails against it, but he grew it. He didn't clean it up, he didn't take the politics out, he didn't do anything to reduce the size. He grew it, and we're paying for that. Then you go and you look at the fact that our national security used to be peace through strength. Growing our alliances, growing our friendships to intimidate our enemies. And now he's walking away from all of that, thinking that America doesn't need friends, thinking that he can get weak in the knees with enemies. We can't do that. 
That's, a, that's basically an equation for war. And then you go look at the RNC apparatus itself. The RNC was always about winning seats up and down the ticket. Now, before the primary is over, Donald Trump has gone and taken the RNC. He's putting his daughter-in-law at the head of it. He's having his campaign manager run it. And they've made it very clear that now the RNC is just about Donald Trump. Now, he spent $60 million in campaign contributions on his own personal court cases. If this happens, all of a sudden, the RNC is going to be his legal flush, flush fund. I mean, slush fund. That's what he's going to have. It's going to be all for his personal court cases. I know. Flush fund, I, know. <laughs> I barely know what city I'm in right now. So I'll just say Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley in downtown Washington, D.C. on this first day of three days of voting for D.C.'s Republican presidential primary. She also held a couple of campaign rallies on Thursday in Virginia, which will be one of the 15 states holding presidential primaries on March 5th, Super Tuesday. Georgia holds its presidential primary March 12th, one week later. But unlike Washington, D.C., which is overwhelmingly Democratic, almost certain to vote for the Democratic Party's nominee in the general election, Georgia is a toss-up battleground state. And First Lady Jill Biden campaigned today in Atlanta for her husband Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris for re-election with the launch of the group Women for Biden-Harris. My husband is the author of the Violence Against Women Act. And I saw him write that bill on reams of yellow legal paper by hand, and he spent his entire career lifting up women. But Donald Trump? He spent a lifetime tearing us down and devaluing our existence. He mocks women's bodies, disrespects our accomplishments, and brags about assault. Now he's bragging about killing Roe v. Wade. Just last night, he took credit again for enabling states like Georgia to pass cruel abortion bans that are taking away the right of women to make their own health care decisions. How far will he go? When will he stop? You know the answer. He won't. He won't. He said it himself last night in his own words. He's considering a national abortion ban. Donald Trump is dangerous to women and to our families. We simply cannot let him win. We can't wake up on November 6th like we did in 2016, terrified of the future ahead of us, thinking, oh my God, what just happened? What are we going to do now? We must re-elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. First Lady Jill Biden today in Atlanta on this first day of Women's History Month and the launch of the group Women for Biden-Harris, 
The First Lady plans to make campaign stops in Arizona, Nevada, and Wisconsin. There are at least three well-known independent and third-party candidates running for president this year. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Cornell West, Jill Stein, Ralph Nader, who ran for president four times, Green Party in 1996 and 2000, Reform Party in 2004, and as an independent in 2008, joined C-SPAN on this morning's Washington Journal program to talk about the 2024 presidential race. Poll after poll shows over 60% of the people want a viable third party. The problem is that they find themselves at election time unable to vote for a third party because the system with winner-take-all, electoral college, uh, gerrymandering, uh, draws them into uh, feeling that only one of two candidates can win, Republican uh, or Democrat. But I look over the history of third parties, the first a party against slavery was the Liberty Party in 1840, and the small parties for the women's right to vote in decades after that, and the Farmer Party, and the Workers' Party, and the People's Party, and so many things we accept today, uh, the blessings of today, the Social Security, unemployment tax, a progressive tax, 40-hour week, ability to form unions, all started with third parties before they were picked up by a major party, even though third parties never won a national election. Well, well speaking think, of third, third uh, the party... The capital citizen gives a, a voice to these people. Well, speaking of third party, RFK Jr. Um, has said that he will not bow out of the 2024 race, even if polling shows that he would be a potential spoiler for President Biden. Um, you know, you were criticized, obviously, back in 2000 for uh, being a spoiler for... Uh, um, uh, for Wait a minute. Uh, Mimi, uh, spoiler is a politically bigoted word when it's directed only to third parties. Uh, look, we all have a right equal under the Constitution to run for public office, local, state, and national. Therefore, we're all trying to get votes from one another. Therefore, we're either all spoilers of one another or none of us are spoilers. So I reject that phrase, uh, spoilers. And I think that good ideas come from uh, small candidates. For example, uh, there's not going to be any presidential debates because the Republican National Committee is pulled out and Trump doesn't want it. Uh, So that leaves a vacuum. No presidential debates. Uh, uh, So here's my idea. There are six states that are swing states, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin. The major cities in those states could invite the candidates for presidential debates. Who doesn't want to debate in their city? The Chamber of Commerce, unions, civic groups, town hall. They all want presidential debates because all the media coverage they get. So I've written to the mayors of these cities and, and ask them, uh, why don't you appoint a, 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 a multi-supported citizens committee inviting the candidates to presidential base after the national conventions are over? Uh, I got a response from the mayor of Milwaukee. He's considering it. But the League of Women Voters, the Urban League, the unions, the neighborhood groups, uh, they, they'll all w- w- want to get together. And that way we can have questions asked regionally, questions that are often never asked by the choreographed presidential debates. Now, you see, that idea does not come from the two major parties. It comes from the grassroots. 
Ralph Nader, a former presidential candidate and longtime consumer advocate, who just turned 90 years old, interviewed on this morning's Washington Journal program on C-SPAN. You can find it at our video library, cspan.org. From CNN, defense attorneys in Fulton County delivering their closing arguments as to why Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis should be dismissed from the election interference case against Donald Trump and his alleged co-conspirators. The hearing in front of Fulton County Judge Scott McAfee will conclude defense attorneys' days-long presentation into whether allegations around Willis's romantic relationship with Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade created a conflict of interest that should bar her from continuing to prosecute the case. That was the story from CNN. Here's part of the closing argument from John Merchant, attorney for Mike Roman, one of Donald Trump's co-defendants. Why did we spend so much time on a relationship um, between these two people? We frankly couldn't care less if they had a personal relationship outside of work. That, that is not what the issue is here. The issue is that they began this relationship in 2019. They were dating for two years, and then she awarded him a contract where public money, either from Fulton County or the state of Georgia, ended up in his pockets. That decision alone was improper. But what's even what's even more improper is that then she she and he used that money to go on personal vacations and trips. Um, if your honor will re- remember, exhibits nine, eleven, and twelve dealt with the expenditures um, by Wade um, on trips. Um, if you if you do the math on that, if you look at what what he spent, and then you look at the testimony about what was paid back. Um, by Willis, because the, the cash reimbursement theory, well, I'll talk about in a second. But it, he, if you if you do the math on what he actually paid for and, and what they testified she paid back in cash, you still have uh, over ninety two hundred dollars, ninety two hundred dollars and ninety two hundred forty seven dollars to be exact, is is the amount of money they cannot account for in their testimony. And as your honor will remember, um, there was no mention of cash in Mr. Wade's affidavit when uh, the best and first opportunity to to raise that issue would have come up is when the state filed their response in his affidavit. That is nowhere to be found in there. The first time we heard about cash um, was here in this courtroom. Attorney John Merchant at the Fulton County Superior Court in Atlanta, Georgia. The attorney for the Fulton County District Attorney's Office making today's closing argument, Adam Abate. The defense has to show an actual conflict. And in this instance, they have to show an, the actual conflict would be that Ms. Uh, Willis uh, received a financial benefit or gain and did it based uh, or got it based upon the, the outcome of the case. It doesn't make any sense. It makes absolutely no sense. And during the three days of the extensive tes- testimony of all of the witnesses and the prolonged uh, examinations, um, of the witnesses by multiple the defense counsel, they still got nowhere. We're in the same position we were in on Monday. The same assertions that were made uh, on Monday have no answers today as we were before your honor. They were not able to provide any evidence as to, uh, or to the contrary of Ms. Willis and Ms. Wade's assertions of when their relationship began. There's absolutely no evidence that contradicts that the relationship did not begin later than uh, around March of 2022, Your Honor. I'd further uh, submit to the court because of this failure that their assertion or their request that one, the indictment be dismissed. 
there's absolutely no evidence that the defendants in this case, their due process rights uh, have been harmed in absolutely any way. There was zero evidence, not a single shred of evidence was produced through any of the exhibits or the witness testimony showing how their constitutional rights, their due process rights were all, were at all affected by the relationship that began in March of 2022 with Ms. Willis and Mr. Wade. And because of that, the motion to disqualify should be uh, denied. Adam Abate, attorney for the Fulton County District Attorney's Office, at today's closing arguments in the hearing on the alleged misconduct of Fulton County, Georgia, D.A. Fonnie Willis. The accusations that she had a romantic relationship with the special prosecutor, Nathan Wade, that began before he was appointed in the case and that she benefited financially from that arrangement. The judge has promised a ruling on whether to disqualify her and him within two weeks. Story from The Independent, the classified documents case against former President Donald Trump may not begin until late summer or early fall after a federal judge in Florida called special counsel Jack Smith's proposed trial schedule unrealistic. Donald Trump attended today's hearing. And from the New York Times, Brian Mulroney, Canada's 18th prime minister, whose statesmanship on what he called great causes from free trade and acid rain in North America to the overthrow of apartheid in South Africa, gave way to accusations of financial misdoing and influence peddling after he left office, died on Thursday in a hospital in Palm Beach, Florida, where he had a home. He was 84. That was from the New York Times. He was prime minister of Canada from 1984 through 93. C-SPAN interviewed him in 1993 in the Canadian Embassy in Washington. What's the best thing about politics? The best thing about politics is that you actually can make a difference. Uh, You can make a difference in some large issues. You have successes and failures there. But you can make a difference in some small, what it might appear to be small issues. I was... um, looking yesterday at some correspondence that I received uh, from um, some Canadians in difficulties abroad and where we've been able to intervene properly and help them out and um, uh, where families have been assisted and differences have been made in individual lives. It's made a big, uh, that's what you can do. You can, sure, you can sign free trade agreements and you can fight general elections and, and you can have the glory that comes with it, very ephemeral glory that comes with it. But I think the feeling that you, you can make a difference, and you do make a difference in your time, is a rewarding consideration. Former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, in a 1993 C-SPAN interview, he was Prime Minister 1984 through 93, led the Progressive Conservative Party, described as a center-right party, which existed until 2003, and Brian Mulroney has died at the age of 84. Ohio became the 17th state of the United States on this date in 1803, and Congressman Bob Lotta, Republican from Ohio, is celebrating. Happy 221st birthday, Ohio. You know, Ohio is known for many beautiful things, from the Ohio River in the south to Lake Erie in the north, but it's our people that have made our state great. When you think of having eight presidents hail from the state of Ohio, from having John Glenn to having Neil Armstrong who had walked on the moon, 
to having the inventor who invented the light bulb, when you think about Thomas Elva Edison, for all of his great achievements. But again, as I said, it's Ohio's people that make our state great, and it's gonna be Ohio's people that'll keep Ohio great into the future. Happy birthday, Ohio. Congressman Bob Latta, Republican from Ohio, with that video posted on X. Senator Sherrod Brown, Democrat from Ohio, also posting on X. Here's the 221 years of the best state in the union. Happy birthday, Ohio. It's almost time to begin phase two. And he includes a map that divides the U.S. into Ohio, Upper Ohio, Lower Ohio, Canada is labeled as soon-to-be Ohio, Mexico as future Ohio, Alaska as cold Ohio, Hawaii as Hawaii-o, and Florida stays Florida. Maybe because they need someplace to go in the winter. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Subscribe to C-SPAN's free evening newsletter, Word for Word, and get the stories making headlines in Washington sent to your inbox every day. Sign up at cspan.org slash connect. Have a good night and weekend. 